Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. Do your homework on where you're going. What might sound like an amazing opportunity might not actually be really good work experience. You know, dress for the job you want, right? I think it's the same thing for, you know, act for the job you want in a way. Like if you put yourself out there as, for example, I, I've always, my background is in kind of like, you know, risk management, project management. I wanted to be a project manager. So that's what I kept positioning myself as like, I can handle this project. Even though it's a small project, I can handle it. I've done it before. I can do it for you. No problem. This is how I would do it. And I think no matter what position people want or have, that's what they would do is like act like this is what I'm going to do. This is where I see myself. And as long as you see yourself in that position, then others will too. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we're talking with Ginny Wright, who has spent the last three years as a program consultant for IOM in Tunisia, Switzerland, and Timor-Leste. Ginny started out as a consultant in emergency management field in Australia and then held similar positions in Sweden and the UK. She then transitioned to become Director of Communications and Development for the Human Rights Defense Center and held multiple other international research positions and consultancies for NGOs and private sector. She also started her own private consultancy practice. And overall, Ginny has spent 16 years working in an international environment. And today, Ginny joins us to share her insights and perspectives on international careers. Okay. Hi, Ginny. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks. So thanks for agreeing to, to have a chat with me today about international careers as part of our Perspectives interview series. And so this the series is really about sort of just, you know, us having a conversation as, as you know, international career professionals that work in the international community and, you know, sort of share our thoughts and ideas about what it's like to, to work and live abroad for people that maybe want to work internationally or, or want to find out more information about the organizations or, or what it's like to actually take on these projects and do this kind of work overseas. And so I think one of the best places, of course, is to start out with just an introduction. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're currently working on. Sure. So I'm a little bit of a transatlantic hybrid. Um, my, my dad's from the U.S. and my mom is Swedish. And they always taught me to, to love traveling and and just became very interested in migration early on um, because I was a migrant since age six. And so that's what got me into working in the migration field now as well. So I started working with, with IOM a few years ago and, and had a bit of a hiatus. And now I'm back with IOM and we'll be soon moving to Tunisia to work for IOM in Tunisia. So it's very interesting. Okay. Wow. So IOM 
International Office of Migration. And, and they're, where are they based out of? They're in Geneva. So actually, it's an international organization for migration. It's also been okay, rebranded recently because it became part of the UN system. So it's also called UN Migration. Make it easier for everyone oh, okay. to remember. Oh, fantastic. So you're going to be going to Tunisia. What do you think about that? Is that exciting for you? That'd be great. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I'm uh, especially looking forward to brushing up on my French skills. Um, I, I've actually been working in the, the African continent before, but in a very different context. Um, my, my first experience with an international career actually was when I moved to um, Zimbabwe to work for the Swedish embassy and then later also with IOM in Zimbabwe. So that's what got me into the UN system originally. So it'd be fun to be okay. back in Africa, even though in a, in a very different part of Africa. Okay, wow. So let's let's talk about that for a second. So when you were going through university studies and things like that, did you focus on the specific topic of migration? And then you were just started looking for jobs in the international space? That's a good question. I, I think what I was focusing on at the time was that kind of transitioning um, of, of governments and, and of countries. I was very fascinated with young countries and, and how they could learn from older countries and not repeat the same mistakes. So that's something that my, my undergraduate degrees were very focused on various obstacles that might um, face post-colonial countries and also just newborn countries and, and how they could kind of catch up quicker. So that's something that I did when I when I did my bachelor thesis. I focused on Southern African development, um, particularly on security studies and how the security system had been changed and, and what could be done better in, in those aspects. And that's what landed me um, this internship with the Swedish embassy was that they were very interested in getting me to, to work with them and do some reporting on this as well. So it was a great opportunity. I, I'm, I was very grateful for the time that I had there because I got to work directly with them. The, the ambassador who's a huge mentor and, and, and just amazing person all over and uh, and the first secretary. And I think that the way that they did it was not so much, you know, pushing papers or fetching coffee. They actually made me feel part of the team. And I think many of the other people in the, the diplomatic community actually thought that I was a true member of the embassy, even though I was just an intern. I even got invited to several you know, big events, just like anyone else. And it was addressed to the second secretary of the embassy. So I felt very special <laughs> to be considered oh, wow. really part of the team, even though I really was not. But that was that was a really great experience of um, feeling part of what it would be like doing a, a diplomatic um, career. And it was during the EU presidency. So um, for those who are not familiar with it, the EU system, it basically the Sweden would be representing the EU as well during this time. So I was not only um, being part of the team representing Sweden, but also representing the EU and working directly with other um, members of the EU embassies at the time. So that mm. was particularly interesting. So I really enjoyed that. Oh, that's quite interesting. And, and actually, that's pretty unusual for an internship, right? Absolutely. That heavily involved. Yes, and it was. I had um, I had interviews with other embassies, and it was one particularly actually in Morocco, I think, or somewhere in North Africa, because I was looking forward to brushing up my French again there. And I didn't get the internship, and I found out that the intern who did was sitting in a hallway and was not allowed to attend any meetings. wasn't really was just given things to read and and actually copying paper and fetching coffee for the six months that um, she was there. So I think I really got um, lucky in the placement I got. So that would definitely be something that I, I recommend to others is to to do your homework on where you're going. What might sound like an amazing opportunity might not actually be really good work experience. Hmm. 
No, that's a good point. I think a lot of people are particularly frustrated with internships right now, to be honest, because I mean, with the pandemic and everything else that's been happening and, you know, a lot of things that have sort of, of course, have shifted to like online. So like online internships and virtual internships and everything, which is not the same, right? It's not the same as actually being in a different country. Did you find that sort of experience of, of going abroad and having that internship? Did that start really kind of shaping your ideas about international work? Absolutely. It's really, I mean, even when you meet other professionals while you're studying, you you just don't really understand what the, the day-to-day uh, work looks like. That internship was amazing. Um, it was unpaid, I should say that, but it was really interesting mm-hmm. because I got to work with other second, third secretaries, political officers, basically the dream job at, at the time that I really wanted to do. And I got to, to work with them directly and, and feel like I was doing exactly the same jobs that they were doing. So that really gave you an idea of what it, what the job is behind the curtain, so to speak, you know, to what what it would be like to continue down that route. It was something that I, I was very interested in, but then I got the, it was actually the ambassador that helped me get the, the position with IOM. He was one who pushed me in that direction and told me that that's where I should apply. I wasn't really familiar with the organization um, until he really nudged me to, to go after that. And um, working for IOM, I was like, this is where I want to continue. This is where I belong. So that was, I, I thought it was in the uh, diplomatic community, but it turns out it's more in the, the UN community. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. And and so I've had that experience too. I mean, we, we think we're going to start out in one area and then we actually end up being in a different area entirely. I mean, when I started out quite literally in the emergency services on a fire department and then ended up working in international crisis management for, you know, decades now, if you had told me, I would never, ever believe it, right? Where, where things have ended up. But that's kind of interesting that he, the ambassador that kind of gave you that direction. Was that something that was not even on your radar at the time? I mean, because when I talk to a number of graduates and young professionals that want to move into the international space, one of the key problems we find is simply lack of knowledge of opportunities, right? Lack of knowledge on organizations. And it's a bit of what I call a zero-sum game. Like, if you never know, you can never apply. There's, There's no other way. So did that sort of open your eyes to the fact that there's more organizations out there that you were just not aware of? Or how did that sort of change your mindset? Well, I think at the time I had a very, um, even even before entering the the actual field, I had this misconception maybe of what foreign aid was, and how it worked. And I, I just I thought I didn't I didn't want any part of it. I didn't think it was um, deficient the way they were doing things. And I just didn't I didn't think that that's where I can make a real impact. And talking to him about like how passionate I was about migration as being a migrant and working with with migrants and refugees since I was a teenager, really. Um, he he told me this this is. Um, because I thought UNHCR was the only organization that I could work with. And he gave me so many different other organizations that, that were very instrumental that are all part of the shelter clusters and so on. And, and he um, organized, we did a trip out to see where the Swedish money was going to, to give me a better idea of like, what does actually foreign aid look like in practice and, and how can it, how can it help to build a real impact? So that was really, I mean, you've, you've, you, you know, read articles or books or whatever, and you get a kind of idea of what you think it might be, but it's a whole different picture when you can see, okay, this is how much money went into it. This is the impact. This is what could really be achieved. And it was really impressive what IOM had done in Zimbabwe about creating some kind of balance between um, helping the people that were internally 
internally displaced that by by government and, and there in many ways might be considered trespassers and have really nowhere to go. And I was able to navigate that maintaining good relationships with the government while still being able to provide some kind of security and stability to those who had nowhere else to go. And I thought that was like, this is, I thought politics was where I wanted to be. And, you know, the diplomacy was the only way to go. But then I realized that even when you're working with emergency, there is a form of diplomacy in that as well, to be able to help those who need the most help. You need to have some kind of diplomatic skills to, mm -hmm. to be able to reach those. So that was, that was a great learning curve. And like I said, I wasn't really, I'd heard of IOM, but I wasn't really clear on, on what they did until he really nudged me in that direction and said, no, I think this is where, where you would like to work. This seems like it's aligned with what you want to do in your life. So I'm really grateful to him for that. Yeah. Interesting. So, so what kind of happened after that? So he gives you a nudge and tells <laughs> you, look, here's some insider information. You need to kind of head in this direction what happened next well so after we did the field visit he didn't want to you know push me too far but he said like but it's when i you know i lit up when we were um seeing like the money put into action and he helped me get five minutes i think with the chief of mission at the time which is the the big boss at the iom mission and because i had so many ideas on how i could help them one thing that iom zimbabwe had done really great was there was a huge economic crisis and, and a political crisis in 2008 and iom was one of the few organizations that responded to this and again maintain good relationships with the government which wasn't the easiest um and i was just so impressed with how they had helped the people that were really affected by this this um, terrible time in, in the history and I, I offered I basically gave my pitch my elevator pitch to the chief of mission saying like I this is how much I need this is how much time I need and what I'll do is I'm going to do a study on what were the lessons learned from what you guys did in 2008 what could be replicated and what can be put into proper um you would like this <laughs> as a proper like emergency response plans contingency plans for if something similar happens again and more importantly like how can we do better of working with partners to make sure we're not duplicating efforts so there was something that came up before that was it was very ad hoc the responses there were no real plans in place everything was really um you know run in one direction and at the same time you get alerted about something else they run in another direction and so i said well how much better could it be if you actually had plans sops uh, contingency plans different kinds of referral mechanisms uh watch lists and warning signs to like a kind of early warning system and so and he was all on board so that's how i got my 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 second internship, which was paid this time with IOM. And um, after six months there, I got offered a six months consultancy to to work more with the government on the kind of the, the results from my study to put that into practice. I was actually um, part of the National Technical Working Group. So sitting with everyone else who were like twice my age <laughs> and mm. trying to update Zimbabwe's national contingency plan. So that was incredibly interesting to to be sitting there with all the heavy <laughs> heavyweights and trying to to make this like comprehensive contingency plan for um, very natural disaster was very easy uh, human induced disasters in a country uh, under like, dictatorship was not the the easiest um, mm -hmm. so that was a very interesting time to, to try and push that I think it was the first time we were able to include that. Um, in the, the contingency plan, where we call it civil unrest, can call it conflict, can call it other things, but it was mm -hmm. civil unrest was in there. And 
very close to the numbers that I had derived from my risk assessment that I had been doing for IOM. So that was very interesting to see that actually being implemented, not just within the agency, but actually nationally in the country. So that was very, very interesting. So, boarding. so, so when you, that's interesting to hear that you actually pitched an idea that they bought off on. I mean, because that's pretty rare in terms of international work. I think so, but that's also what I recommend when other students and graduates um, reach out to me is, is there's so many, I mean, I, I constantly apply for other jobs as well, and I constantly get, you know, turned down for various jobs. The jobs that I usually get are the ones that I pitch to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's something okay. I definitely recommend is um, the idea of that if you don't find something or you're not getting something is more the, the creating something yourself. This is what I can do. This is what I can bring to the table. Really looking at where you would like to work and figuring out if you can offer them a solution to a problem. They might not even know they have the problem, but it's great to be able to be able to pitch that solution. So that's what I did. I said, you guys have done a great job. I really appreciate um, the, the impact that you're able to achieve, even though you're working so ad hoc. So just imagine what we could do if we put this into like actual best practices and into your plans. So that's something I think anyone can bring. Whatever your your skill set is, even if you don't have any experience, what can you offer them? And usually uh, students and graduates are a little bit cheaper. So that's something that you can always motivate is like, I'll, I'll do this a little bit cheaper than having someone up now, as I am right now, as a consultant come in and do the research. I know I was a lot cheaper back then, but I still think I made a good <laughs> impact. <laughs> and that's something I think makes you very um, competitive when applying for yeah. jobs is that you have, you are a little bit cheaper at the time. And I was already established in Zimbabwe. I had a nice place to live. I, I yeah. didn't have to pay everything. So it was a good time to, to, to get that foot in the door at least. Yeah. You were readily available, right. Since you were there and, and re- relocation is a big deal. Yes. Yeah. I tell people a lot that, um, you know, at least from my own personal experience and opinion that, you know, you had to sort of, have some independent ideas and a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset when it comes to international careers, because you don't know when these opportunities come up. Uh, And so you always have to have some ideas of your own that you can be able to talk to people about. And a lot of that comes down to being able to not associating yourself with the position. Like you're, you obviously weren't just thinking of yourself as an intern. Well, I'm just an intern and I can't say these things, you know? So we, I think a lot of people get mixed up sometimes because they associate themselves and and their value to a certain extent to the position they're sitting in. And we have to sort of reframe the way we think about it in terms of, okay, we need to be a bit more entrepreneurial, take ownership of our career. And when these things come up, just, you know, give people your ideas, talk to people, create opportunities and create the experience that we need to move our career forward. Um, Actually, I say that a lot. So, um, you know, I promise this is the first time we've ever met. We've only connected on LinkedIn. And so (laughs) I haven't, we haven't had a discussion really about these topics before we got started, but I say very much the same thing, which is like, you know, you really do have to be able to, to, or at least be prepared to create your own opportunities because the, the way the international community works to a certain extent is, is quite unusual. Absolutely. I think. Well, I think so, it's, what is, what's that famous quote, you know, dress for the job you want, right? I think it's the same mm-hmm. thing for, you know, act for the job you want in a way like if you put yourself out there as for example i i've always my background is in kind of like you know risk management project management i wanted to be a project manager so that's what i kept positioning myself as like i can handle this project even though it's a small project i can handle it i've done it before i can do it for you no problem this is how i would do it and i think no matter what position people want or have that's what they would do is like act like 
this is what I'm going to do. This is where I see myself. And as long as you see yourself in that position, then others will too, (laughs) eventually, hopefully. Yeah. And I mean, along those lines, you know, if you don't take yourself seriously, nobody, nobody else will. Right. Exactly. So so you kind of, you got into this position now, I kind of want to finish your kind of career progression to where you are. And then we can talk about some of the things that, you know, you've learned since then, but you, you got into that consultancy piece and then what happened after that? Well, um, so this is, this is, I guess, where uh, learning curve for me as well. I, I, there was no funding for me after that. So I kind of squeezed mm-hmm. myself in, um, even though I wasn't planned for, they, they fit me into a budget. Um, so that's something that's very, most UN agencies work very project-based. So there was something that once my six, other six-month consultancy came up, there was no funding left. Um, and I gave up. And this is where I really shouldn't have. There would have been... Um, if I could go back and do things differently, then I would probably have um, applied for another IOM mission or um, pushed more, I guess, or being a little bit more creative for how I could stay, or even just stayed in Zimbabwe, maybe working for somewhere else for three months and then try again to get back in. But um, I instead got offered an internship with, and I'm not going to say which agency now because I'm not going to be nice, <laughs> but I got offered a, a great, what I thought was a great internship for the a UN agency in New York and be, lived overseas most of my life. It felt really great to go back to the US, you know, as a half American. So I was very excited about going back, but this was a completely unpaid internship and would be my, my third internship now in New York City. But Sweden has a really cool scholarship program that they, they basically fund you for one time. They give you a, a grant um, if you're working for a UN agency. So I was approved for this, but I needed the supervisor to, to just um, fax over a signed piece of paper. I reminded him about this multiple times, and he claimed that he had done this. And then I arrive in New York, and he has not done that. So I arrive there, and he says, well, you can just work extra. So he wanted me to work 10, 12 hours a day for free in, in Manhattan and then work nights to be able to afford to live there. And um, it was also an internship that included just taking minutes, going to meetings, copying paper, fetching coffee. <laughs> so I, yeah, I lasted. <laughs> yeah. So I lasted for about, I don't know, two or three weeks and I quit. <laughs> so oh, it's, you. You, you don't see it on my resume. But um, that was that really discouraged me from UN work, even though um, I had a great experience with IOM, I got very discouraged by what it was like working for a big office, not in a field office. And I went to work for the um, Swedish government again. I worked for the, the Swedish transport agency. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. And then I basically jumped around between government jobs and private sector for about nine years until one of my coworkers from IOM Zimbabwe reached out and wanted me to go. He was now the, the head of IOM Timor Leste. So he wanted me to come and do a research project for one year working with him. So then I got called back into it. <laughs> so, so since then, I've been back with IOM since um, uh, January or February 2019. Okay. Oh, great. So during that time, like, how did you maintain like kind of contact with people? Like what was kind of your, your process? I mean, because you were obviously you were, you were working already somewhere else back in Sweden, but obviously you you wanted to continue working internationally. You know, that was appealing to you. Uh, So how did you sort of maintain contacts and with people? Because, you know, those networks are important. Absolutely. I, I would say LinkedIn, it's something that, um, 
while I was in Zimbabwe, I was also doing my master's uh, degree online. I really, uh, University of Leicester had a great program that was, they basically sent all the books, everything I needed, and uh, were very flexible when it came to my, my poor internet connection from Zimbabwe. So I I had about another year left on my studies. So that's really what the focus was for the next year. But my master's thesis was um, another way to try and get into the government system, um, testing that out with the, so I was looking again at how can we institutionalize best practices, and I was looking particularly at the, the U.S. government. So I used my master's thesis as a way to kind of leverage my LinkedIn also to make new connections that I didn't already have. So I made connections within the, the Swedish diplomatic community, the EU, and also within the UN. And now I was looking more into um, government positions within the US. And I used the master thesis to kind of build that network that I needed in case I wanted to work for the US government. So that was that was really helpful. And I got a really good job for a private intelligence firm in Florida. And that's how I got back into um, the U.S. And after that, I was just been mainly working in various research roles, applying the the proper way, you know, through the every time there was a job position opened, I would apply for it and having zero luck getting um, in, plenty of interviews, no job offers. And that's where I, I, I got more into the networking side of it, where I, I started to go back to my connections that I had made when I was in Zimbabwe and, and flat out told them, I am I want to get back in. I'll work anywhere. <laughs> what do you have for me? And um, just by asking around, I think the word spread. And that's how my former coworker knew that I was ready to move and, and happy to move to the other side of the world. <laughs> so I think okay. that's one thing. It doesn't really help to, to apply online. You're applying with thousands of other people that are equally qualified. And it's just, it's, you're, you're one of um, so many faces. So mm -hmm. I think that, that building your own network and, and telling them that you are available and, and ready to work um, is really the way to, to get a connection. And so the, the job that I got after Timor was also, I didn't, I didn't even really apply for it, I don't think. I think they reached out to me and asked me to apply for it. And the same thing for the role I have right now. Um, I don't believe I applied for it either. <laughs> I eventually did, but I think it was more that I had been sure. passing around my, my resume to everyone. And, and I got really nice help from some, someone I met on LinkedIn who put in my, my application to the pile. <laughs> So I think that's really, I can't say it enough how much LinkedIn has has helped since 2011. Pretty much all the jobs yeah. I have got is through LinkedIn, more or less, through connections I made on LinkedIn. Yeah, which I see you're blowing up LinkedIn, by the way. You've got like 40,000 <laughs> followers now or something like that. Yeah. That's quite a bit for LinkedIn. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah, yeah. I tried creating my own content uh, towards the end of my um, consultancy with IOMT Molesta as a way to try and put myself out there again and say, like, I am available, please hire me. And it, it really has paid off. So that's, um, I, I can't say that enough either, is that the creating your own content and not just using LinkedIn as an, an online CV holder is, is mm -hmm. really the way to, to make sure people notice you and people remember that you're out there. No, absolutely. So, so much has changed recently, even in the business side. So at CBI, when we have a business, you know, there's always this issue of social proofing. And always when you look at websites and you look at the partners and everybody has their partners listed on their website and everything else like that. And so, you know, the personal brand has become so important in terms of even just, you know, I listened to a podcast the other day about branding and they're talking about the fact that even in the B2B scenario, you know, just business to business, we're going to decide if we're going to do business with another company just based on the interactions with one person, with one person in their brand and who they are. That determines that relationship. It's not the company 
you know, sort of brand itself. It's the person inside the company. And that has sort of, I think, grown even more important over the years in terms of just having a personal brand and, and you know, the ability to, to communicate that out, like you said, creating content and everything else that goes along with that. And again, it comes back to this idea of ownership, especially if you want to have an international career. Nobody's going to advocate for you right? Unless it's in your networks or you're doing it or you're proposing ideas that, that again, that is not the, this is one of kind of a point of frustration for me, but this is not the, the role of the international organizations. They will, they know they have demand, right? So they know they have value in this relationship. They know that people want to work in the UN and they will do crazy stuff like intern for a year in New York with no pay, which there was a conversation that blew up on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago, I guess. I don't know if you saw it, but there was the, so they don't have to worry about those things because people will come to them. And so at the same time, they don't care if you go to the EU or NATO or OSCE or IOM because it's there's not a lateral movement in these organizations or between the organizations, right? So they're sitting in a position of value. And the only thing you can do is try and take that value back and create your own career. And I so I think that's great that you're actually doing that and you caught on to that very early on. I think it's only become more important throughout the, the years. And on the, the point of networking, I, I fully support the idea. And it's the same experience I've had where I actually got my first international experience from a phone call from somebody that I knew. Um, and I think networking is, networking is extremely important. I think you can't completely escape the application process, right? Because even now when I sit on boards and things like that, you, you have to apply, right? And so there's like standards, especially with bigger international organizations, you have to have transparent hiring practices and all that stuff like that. And you have to, there has to be a process in place but if again, if you never know about the opportunity, you're never going to apply for it. So one of the best things you can do is have a network where somebody says, you know, oh, hey, look, we're announcing a vacancy in two months. Are you interested? Right. Yes, I think that's a, I, I've always had, I've always applied for them technically, but you're absolutely right. The, the way I found out about them is usually because someone says, hey, we think you'd be a good fit for this role. You should apply. So I think that's that's definitely um, you don't know about all those opportunities that are out there unless you have people keeping an eye out for you. And, and I think that's that's one way to do it is I always try and keep an eye out for other people. And hopefully they remember that that I'm around when they see something that might be interesting to me. So I think that's one thing that's the best way of networking is by trying to help other people find the kind of opportunities they're looking for. And then that will help them kind of keep you fresh in mind when there's some opportunity that comes up that you might be a good fit for. So mm -hmm. that's a good start. Yeah, definitely. So you're making this transition now and you're going over uh, to another country. What are some of the thoughts going through your head now that you're moving to a different location altogether? Uh, it would be, <laughs> I don't even know right now. I, I made the, the terrible mistake of trying to sell a house and buy a house at the same time. So I made it really, really difficult for uh. myself. Um, but it's it's been very interesting because it, it was a long time since I moved and, and for, for a short time. Um, at least it's a little bit longer than the, the other jobs. It's been five months now, but sometimes I've been offered jobs for only three months, which is incredibly difficult for anyone to be able to, to pack up your life and, and leave for three months and then come back. And you're not really sure about, um, and is it possibly longer? I've seen a lot of jobs right now that are that the three months with possibility of extension. It's, it's really hard to be living in that kind of uncertainty for so long. And three months is um, you're, you're constantly in job seeking mode even though you're trying yeah. to focus on your new job. It's, so it's incredibly challenging to, to move to another country and then also trying to learn a new job, a new new organization or a new new office at least. And then also be on the lookout for, well, what happens in case there's no 
money at the end of this three months. And now I have to look for another job. So that's, mm. I think that's challenging for anyone. And um, at least I have five months. I don't need to be on exactly job seeking mode just yet, but <laughs> in a few months we're back at it. Yeah. And that's something that people often don't understand, especially when they're just starting out in their career is how just exactly how much of the work in the international community is project-based, right? So even in the work that I do now, it's like a 12 month cycle, you know, and you, and there's, there's times when you actually don't know at the end of 12 months, like if they're, cause there's always prolonged political discussion, right? And then some nation wants to make a point about something and then holds up the discussions with the budget. And you don't know if it's going to be renewed or not. And there's always this gap of about a month and a half where you're like, are we, or are we not, you know, going to continue. And there's this kind of, I, I think the reason why I bring it up is because I think like what you're saying is there's always this career management piece we have to think about. We always have to think about the next step. It's always something that we're constantly doing. The job security of the past of working with somebody for 20 years is not there anymore. And I've always sort of felt like it was, you know, we have to get into a better practice of always managing our own career. So what's next after five months, you know, and then it's kind of, you know, perpetually moving that forward a little bit more as we, we go from project to project or from, you know, donor-based sort of project to the next one. I think that's something that was never really, never really told to us, even though I, so even, even my high school program was focused on a, like a career with the EU or, or in Europe. And then my, my undergraduate degrees were focused on international careers and never once <laughs> was it mentioned about this project-based way of, um, and, and zero job security. So that's something that I think would be great for students to learn is it's just, you know, um, basic project management, like the cycle and just understanding. Uh, and also, like you said, just having that kind of uh, look of managing your own career, not expecting um, that once you get that internship or once you actually get a job offer that you're set for life in any way, it's, it's you have the own responsibility to to make sure you move forward because nobody's going to do it for you. And there's a certain... Um, right. There's, there's great opportunities with that, but it's just, it might not be for everyone. And I've spoken to some people who I didn't want to discourage, but I also didn't want to give them uh, a false sense of what it might look like. But it definitely, um, it, it, I think the universities might do a better job at explaining what the, what the jobs actually might look like, wh whatever career you're going for, but what it actually might look like in terms of um, your career and your trajectory, so to speak. Yeah, that's a, that's a real challenge that we've we've encountered because of the fact that I'm trying to be nice when I say these things, but it's and we I call it the educational trap to a certain extent because you know higher education is itself a business model, and so when you ask for advice, they're going to kind of give you advice of more education, kind of you know. Um, but at the same time, I, I tell people, or, or at least in my opinion, I advise people like look at who you're asking advice from, and that should tell you like how they're shaping their answers. If you want career advice and you're going to some top diplomat, they're going to give you advice from a diplomat perspective. And it's not going to be fitting for somebody that's trying to find their own way that's not working in the foreign service, right? And so it just becomes, you have to, I think, ask the right people the right questions in order to get the advice that's going to help you the most. And, and the university system, as, as good as they are or aren't, it depends on your, your perspective. Um, are not really oriented to providing international advice. They kind of give the same advice as always across the board to everybody. If you want to go in business or work for Google or whatever, you get always sort of the same advice. And that doesn't really fit like you're saying. So the last question I got for you, because um, we're, we're going a, a bit long here, but the, the last question I got for you is really, you know, if you were starting over, if you're going to do this all over again, what would you do differently? 
think I would have get become a certified project manager like right out of um, the university just because okay. I was already in study mode. I would have just done it right then and there. And um, once I had my foot in the door with IOM, I would have stayed. I, I should have. Um, right now, I'm, I'm because I didn't stay with it and continued with my consultancies to eventually get a staff position. Now I'm even though I'm um, mid-level or maybe even senior level professional, I'm still a consultant. So I could be a lot further along in my career if I hadn't, like you said, there's there's no real, um, I mean, they do appreciate that you have other work experience, but it's not the same as if you're staying within the same system. It's not really easily translatable to when you move. What I've done and what I've accomplished in the private sector is, is not as impressive for IOM. Um, they obviously love that I've been able to do a lot of things and, and different, um, but it's not the same as saying that I've worked for the same amount of years within IOM or whatever organization you're working for. So that's what I think that um, if I could go back and do it differently, I would have stayed. I would have found um, maybe not in Zimbabwe, maybe I would have found mm. another mission to work for. And I didn't really know what a great opportunity I had at the time. I figured, okay, I can always go back. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I didn't realize how hard it would be, be to get back in. <laughs> so that would be my advice to myself. Yeah. Like, don't, don't just leave, just find a way to stay within the system somehow. <laughs> hmm. How would you have done that? Like, what are your, what would your recommendations to be to try and find a way to stand? Well, the same way I got the the first, I would uh, applied. I mean, all the internships that I got were never advertised. I applied for them, um, so that even though I would have to start over again and and do another internship, I could do that for another mission. And what I do think is a good idea. I think a lot of people focus on trying to apply for um, the the nice places, like you know, you have a lot of places, sure. like offices in Europe or in the U.S. It's it's incredibly hard because there's a lot of competition to get in there. If you're willing and able to work in another country, another developing country that maybe other people are not interested in, and then you show in your application that you're actually really interested in that particular country, um, that particular organization, what they're doing in that country, which takes five minutes on Google to figure out what they're doing. So that's what I would do differently. I would have found another mission within IOM that I thought was interesting and I like what they were doing in that particular country. And I would have applied and maybe even leveraged the, the people that I have met with IOM in Zimbabwe to say, do you know anyone in, in any other mission that mm -hmm. might be hiring a um, consultant or an intern? And more importantly, that might have a big enough budget to keep me on for longer. And I, I just don't think that I, I thought about that. I got the offer of that job in New York and I, I, I saw it as the, the great opportunity to work for the UN at a big office, you know, in the big headquarters and it was going to be amazing. And it just, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I think that's something that um, I would give recommendations to others is it can be really amazing. Even if you're not working in New York or in Geneva, you, you can get, and it's all actually more practical if you're working in the field. So that would yeah. be my recommendation is that don't, if you want to push papers, <laughs> I think then the, the nice big offices is, is unfortunately that's, you don't get the same opportunity to have hands-on, um, really feel like you're part of the team, really having to be part of the team because they don't have enough people. So that's something where if you really want to get great work experience, I would say try for the field or the country offices to do so. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Right, Jane. Well, thank you very much for joining us and, and having a chat you. and, uh, you know, sharing your experiences with us. It's really insightful and in, in you're, you know, you're sort of echoing what, you know, I've been telling people as well. So at least they can see it's not just my opinion. <laughs> That's <laughs> right? good. Yes. It's, it's sort of a, a shared experience that we all have in terms of, um, you know, the, the international work and trying to, to create a, a career in of itself. And I really like the ideas that you have in terms of, um, you know, that sort of, you know, 
entrepreneurial aspect, you know, creating opportunities, I think is just becoming increasingly more important uh, over time. And especially, you know, post pandemic and everything else has been happening in the, the world changing. I think we have to take more ownership and, and create the places where we want to be. So thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank and you. Uh, we'll certainly be in touch. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Bye.